This sermon, Participating in God's Purposes, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, January 14th, 2024, at Sovereign Grace Church. My name is Derek Overstreet. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors. I also have the privilege of preaching this morning. We're glad that you are here. There's nothing slick about us. There's nothing dazzling about us. But hopefully by the time you leave here, you will be just a little bit more aware of why you're here and who all of this is about because that's what we are about. We are preaching through the book of Judges. Uh, So if you could open your Bibles, slide your Bibles, whatever it is that you do to Judges 4. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter. And while you're turning there, um, I don't know how familiar you you are with this story. It's the story of Deborah and Barak. Uh, it's really chapter 4 and chapter 5 uh, to one event, two different perspectives, if you will. Perspective might be the wrong word. Two different tellings of what God did through Barak and uh, Deborah. Uh, you could say that chapter 4 is the story in prose, and you could say that chapter 5 is that same story in poetry. Or as I heard somebody say, uh, especially a few sports fans, uh, chapter four is the play-by-play, chapter five is the commentary. For those news hounds that are out there, chapter four is the -the on-the-ground reporting, and chapter five is the pundits uh, at the network that you see on TV. Regardless... We find God here, and as we will learn, we find Christ here. And so we are looking forward to this next two weeks. So would you stand with me? Chapter 4, we're going to read the entire story. Chapter 4, verse 1, reading from the ESV. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah... A prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. 
Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the, the Canaanite who had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the, as the oak in Zaaninim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Haguim to the river Kishon. And Deborah set, said to Barak, Go up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Haguim, and all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come. And I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Please be seated. Pray with me. Lord, this is your word. These are your people. You have gathered them here with intentions. So as we come humbly to your word, have your way in us that we might bring glory to you in all that we do, that your son may be known through our proclamation and demonstration of the gospel and that your church might thrive and grow to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
Well, growing up, uh, I was a kid who was all about sports. Sports, 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 sports. My wife would say, that idolatry, you have never been delivered from that idolatry. It's still sports, sports, sports. But it was. I played, I played as many sports as I could, and I did okay. But I loved sports. There was one sport, however, that I didn't love, and frankly, I was not very good at. In fact, I was terrible. <laughs> uh, it was baseball. Baseball. Um, I played baseball in my younger years up until about 11 or 12. I don't, know what they, I don't know what they call it nowadays, but back then they called it the Babe Ruth League. Do they still call it Babe Ruth? That, that, no, so that's going right over your head. What was the Babe Ruth League? I was not Babe Ruth. Uh, trust me. Um, so I played for a couple seasons. I think ultimately my parents pulled me out because they felt sorry for me. Uh, but I really struggled playing baseball. Uh, I was not good. And I can put my finger on a point in time when I first started playing, I took a ground ball hop right to the lip. And that ruined it for me. I was afraid of the ball. That was my problem. It's not that I wasn't athletic. I was afraid of the ball. And so I played baseball and I was terrified the entire time. In practice, I would run out, take the field. Okay, I got right. I got right fielded. If you know anything about baseball, right field is the least action. And, and so I, that was my position during the games. And I would stand in right field going, oh, don't hit the ball to me. Don't hit the ball to me. Don't hit the ball to me. Oh, you hit the ball to me. And I, I was short like I am now. And because I was afraid of the ball, when I, w- when I would swing, I would step away. And so I was always striking out. So finally my coach said, you know what? When you go up there, you just squat as low as you can. <laughs> you make that strike zone as small as you can. That killed my mom, by the way. I think she's, she's, she's been scarred for life over that one. That was the only way I could get on base was to get walked. I, I struggled with baseball. And I think we had 10 or 11 kids on our team. And so... Uh, I would watch on game day everybody coming in, hoping that there were more than nine. Because I would offer up to sit on the bench. I would offer up to stay in the dugout. I was fine with being a spectator. And you got to understand, that's not me. I, I was always passionate. I always wanted to have the ball. I wasn't afraid to... Okay, give me the ball, and I'm going to carry you on my shoulders. Baseball, I am good in the dugout. Just let me sit in the dugout and watch. I was totally happy with being a spectator. You know the old John Fogarty song? Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play today. Well, my my version was, don't put me in, coach. I'm just fine on the bench today. That, that, That was me. I was fine being a spectator. And at the risk of sounding cliche, you know this, but let me remind you. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It requires involvement. God faithfully accomplishes his redemptive 
purposes. That's what he's doing right now. It's what he was doing in the days of the judges. It's what he's doing right now. It's what he'll be doing when you wake up in the morning and drive to work. And he wants to use you. Not because you're special. Not because I'm special. Not because I'm particularly gifted. Not because you, you, you have game. But in his wisdom, he, he has chosen to bring you into his redemptive plan in a very unique way. And he wants to use you. And so the question for us this morning, are you participating? Or are you content sitting in the dugout as a spectator? That, that's where we're going to get in our text this morning. I've broken up our text for, you, uh, for those of you taking notes into two parts. One, a familiar pattern, and then we're going to see a crucial message. We're not going to get to everything in this story today because we're saving some for next week. This story doesn't give us all the answers of how things were done and why next week we'll learn much more about this text. But this morning, let's begin with a familiar pattern. Notice how verse chapter 4 starts out. Look at your Bibles with me. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagum. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And it goes on to say, because, because Jabin cruelly oppressed them. He just didn't oppress them. He cruelly oppressed them. Now listen, we, we're just a few weeks into Judges, but if that sounds familiar, it's because we've been here before. <laughs> We've been here before. Uh, remember chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. It described the time of the judges as this repeating cycle, right? That there's a cycle in the book of Judges. Think about it like a clock. So, so at high noon, at 12 o'clock, you, you have Israel falls into idolatry. Okay, and then at 3 o'clock, you have... You have God brings oppression. That's where we're at in verses 1 through 3. He brings oppression as judgment for his people's idolatry and sin. And then at 6 o'clock, we saw it in verse 3. Israel cries out for help. They realize, man, we are in trouble. And so they cry out for help. And then at 9 o'clock, God mercifully provides us deliverance. So think of the book of Judges, the cycle we see as a clock. You can throw... Uh, other, other things in between those big rocks. But those are the four big rocks of Judges. And that's what we see on every page of Judges. And so I was thinking this way, it kind of makes you wonder why God could not just say, okay, here's the cycle, chapter 2. And here's an unforgettable example. Ehud, chapter 3. And this happened, by the way, for 300 years in different places and with different people. We would get the point, I think, or maybe not, because God does know what he's doing. Instead of just giving us that, that small version, we get all these historical events that illustrate the same cycle again and again and again. So it's a good question if you're reading Judges, just go, why the repetition? Why? Well, here's why. God's repetition is our warning. God's repetition is our warning. Like Israel, it's easy to just run over these first three verses. Yeah, we get it. They were into, into adultery. 
They just, they were thick-headed. God's repetition is our warning. Like Israel, we forget about God. This is our place in the story. One of them, at least. Do you remember what chapter 2, verse 10 said? It said that there was a whole generation who did not know the Lord and what he had done. In other words, Israel, the book of Judges begins by telling us that Israel had forgotten about the goodness and the provision and the faithfulness of God. They, they had forgotten what God did through their forefathers, Abraham and Moses and, the, and their fearless leader that, that they're probably still mourning, Joshua. They had forgotten that God led them into the very promised land where they stand so that they could thrive spiritually and worship him and freedom. But instead, they turned to the cultures around them. And they said, what do you have? They said, what, what brings you joy? What gives you purpose? Oh, we'll join in with you. They forgot their purpose. They, they forgot their mission. They knew of God, but they had forgotten about God in their hearts. And just as Israel fell into idolatry, aren't we? This is true, isn't it? If we're honest, aren't we allured by the idols of our age and culture that promised the world to us but in the end, they oppress us. That's Satan's scheme. They oppress us. It's like the Turkish delight. Remember? What was his name, babe? The, yeah, nice call. Eustace. He wants the Turkish delight. He gets it from the queen. It's so good. What did you say? Oh, oh, here. You, want, you, just want, you want to preach? That might be a future preacher. Right? He wants more and more, but it, it just leads him into the prison. He's oppressed. He's, he's enslaved. That, that's, that's, that's what happens with us. We adopt the world's values. We embrace the, world, the culture's priorities. We, 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 we get caught up in life is about health and wealth, success and pleasure, self-indulgence and self-significance. Do you know what that is? That's life in Canaan serving 21st century bells. And that's what that is. That's what, judge, that's, what, that's what Judges 4 looks like. That's what the first three verses look like in our world, in our culture. But here's the good news. If you're feeling the weight of all that, if you're feeling hopefully the conviction of some of that, the good news is that God doesn't send another judge. These judges, we've been talking about this over and over again. We heard about it in communion this morning. These judges were shadows ultimately. They were types. They pointed forward 
to the one who would come, a true Savior, the only Savior. God doesn't send us another judge. He sent us his son, Jesus Christ. And you read about what he did. You heard about what he did in the reading of Hebrews, the once and for all sacrifice, who is greater who is greater than anything that our culture can give us, who is greater, who gives us greater purpose than anything this world could even begin to offer. And so the repentance, or excuse me, the repetition of judges, it it stops us in our tracks. At least this is what it's intended to do. It stops us in our tracks. It leads us to repentance. And it recenters us. On Christ. That's what this is about. What am I doing here? Well, hopefully, you'll leave here recentered on Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, listen, what I want you to hear, when I talked about how we give ourselves to idols, by we, I mean the Christians in this room. So if you're an unbeliever, what I want you to hear is to be a Christian is not to be perfect. To be a Christian is not to have, to, is to, to have a life absent of struggles. To, to be a Christian is not about the ability to do all the right things all the time. It's about being a sinner saved by grace. It's about being someone who, who, was, who was stuck in this cycle hopelessly. Now, I'm still part of the cycle, but I have hope. <laughs> I can get up in the morning and say, I don't have to give in to that. I don't have to buy the world's lies. And it's not something that is elusive to you. It's not something that that you have to have some kind of secret knowledge of. You don't have to sit down with someone in this church who brought you and, and study books and really know the doctrines of the Bible. No, the Bible says faith in Jesus. Believe what you're hearing this morning. Believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Romans 10. Maybe God intends to save you this morning. Allow your heart to be open to what the Spirit may be saying to you. Come to Jesus. Have faith in Him. So there's a familiar pattern here. The pattern is meaningful, though. It is meant to lead us to Christ, recenter us to Christ. We can't just blow over that. There's a good story waiting. Oh, but this is, this is a really important part of the story. So this familiar pattern in the story, Deborah and Brock, it, it also presents a crucial message for us. And, and that's where I want to go next. In verse 4, we meet a woman named Deborah. As we read that, we learn she's described as a prophetess who at the time was judging Israel. Verse 5 says that, that, that Deborah would sit under a tree. She had her own tree. I want my own tree. <laughs> By the way, don't just glance over that. Because you just heard there's one who came who would hang on a tree. A tree is at the heart of the gospel. Because a tree is where our Savior hung and bled and died. And Colossians 1 says that it's a tree that our sins were nailed to. So don't just pass over that. But Deborah would sit under this tree. And what was she doing? Well, people would come to her 
the text says. People would come to her and, and ask her questions, and she, she was judging. I think the point is she was giving the wisdom of God's word to people. Now, this is not the kind of judging we typically see in Judges. Deborah brought the wisdom of God's word to people, but, and we even see her here mediating the word of God to Barak, who's more like your typical judge. He, he's, a, he's a deliverer through might and through military activity. But the way we should see this is together, God kind of uses them as a team. God kind of uses them as a team. And notice how he uses Deborah in Barak's life. Notice what happens in the story next. Verse 6 says, She, that is Deborah, sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Listen to, listen to Brock's uh, response. He said, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then he went with Deborah. So, so, so what we have here is Deborah faithfully mediates God's word, really his command. And did you notice a prophetic promise? She goes to him. The Lord speaks to her. She's faithful. She allows God to use her. She doesn't sit on the sidelines. And she goes to him. And she's an instrument in his own obedience, in his own faith. And she says, listen, the Lord has told you to go. And by the way, he has said he will deliver them into your hands. In other words, you don't need to fear. There's a, there's a, there's a divine command and a prophetic promise. But it's interesting. Did you notice that he, Barak hesitates? Did you catch that? He hesitates. A text doesn't say explicitly why, but I think it perhaps could give us some clues. I think clue number one, uh, we've seen in the text that Sisera has 900 chariots. Those chariots are mentioned here numerous times because they represent a tremendous technological advantage. In the bat on the battlefield for Sisera. Those chariots would cut through Barak's army like a butter, hot, like a hot knife through butter. Humanly speaking, Israel shouldn't stand a chance here. I think the second clue may be in verse, we, we may find in verse 6. This says that Barak was to take his men to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor was, was shaped like an upside-down bowl. And he was to take his men up Mount Tabor, to the top of Mount Tabor. So just think about this. How easy would it be for Sisera's army to surround Mount Tabor? And Barak has no place to go. We'll starve him out. Or when they come down, well... They're going to meet fire. In other words, this was a suicide mission. 
for Barak. Now, Barak is one of the judges. If you read Hebrews 11 this week, Barak is one of the judges praised for his faith in Hebrew 11, along with Gideon and along with uh, Jephthah and along with uh, Samson. He, he's praised for his faith, but like the others that we've seen and will continue to see, his faith wasn't perfect. His faith wasn't perfect. He was just like you and I. He was trying to trust the Lord. He was trying to, to be used by God. But his faith wasn't perfect. And we see that in the story here. He wanted human assurance. Well, I'll go if you go. <laughs> he wanted human assurance. He actually put conditions on God's command and his prophetic promise. I will go if Deborah goes with me. Otherwise, I'm out. Now, culturally speaking, women didn't go to the battlefield. War was a man's work. But did you notice Deborah obliged in the story? The calling was for him to go. She said, okay, I'll go with you. And so once again, we have Deborah obliging to go with Barak, but more importantly, she is following the Lord. She is allowing herself to be used. She is availing herself to God's purposes, even in a way that culturally she shouldn't have been doing. Let's keep going in the story. Now, notice verse 11. Uh, we're, not gonna, we're not going to um, read it yet, but in verse 11, we, we, we meet another character, Heber. Uh, he seems out of place here, but it becomes clear as we move on. In verse 12, Sisera finds out that Barak is on Mount Tabor, and he's a skilled general, and so he knows that Israel is a sitting duck on that mountain. So he summons his own army. He gathers up his 900 chariots of iron, and he says, go to Mount Tabor. We are going to destroy these guys. And look what happens. It's incredible. Notice verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, up. Notice again, she, Deborah is having to help Barak with his faith. Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera. And we're talking about this more next week, but did you notice who did the routing? Did you notice earlier in verses 1 through, who did the selling? Remember, God is always the hero. And it's the same in this story. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Higuim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Here's the concluding thought. Not a man was left. Now how all of that is possible and exactly how the Lord orchestrated that victory, you got to come back next week. But wow, against all odds, Sisera's army is destroyed. This week I thought about that 
epic battle scene. Do you remember Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King? I went back and, and watched the video. Uh, I think it was the, it was the battle of uh, Pelennor Fields or something like that. Do you remember that scene? All, all of the, the, they come marching out of the city. Here come the orcs. And at some point, the good guys look up and they're astonished because they see these giant elephants. Do you remember that scene? And these elephants are cutting through the army like a hot knife through butter. It must have been like that, only instead of the giant elephants, it was, it, it, it was 900 chariots. That, and yet, Sisera's army is destroyed. Sisera's army is leveled. Verse 16 says it all. Not a man was left, save one, Sisera himself. In verse 17, it says that Sisera abandoned his chariot. Why would he do that? That was his advantage. We'll come back next week. You get it? You get it? Come back next week? Come back next week? But for now, I want to remind you who Heber is. Look back up at verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. The Kenites at one time were allies of Israel. Heber, you notice, is even connected to Moses. But like the text tells us, he separated from them. He turned his, if you will, he turned his back on Israel and and now he's friendly with the Canaanites. Now he's allied with King Javan. And so Sisera escapes the battle to seek asylum. And he must know, he must know that Heber is down the street. So he goes there. He doesn't have any men left to fight with. So he seeks asylum. And when he gets there, he seeks it with Jael, Heber's wife. Now, how did that work out for him? Well, look at verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out, Heber's wife, to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Do not be afraid. How reassuring. <laughs> so he turned aside into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening. Don't let anybody know that I'm in there. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer and drove it through his temple as he slept. Moral of the story, always, 
always sleep with one eye open when you're camping. <laughs> Just joking. Actually, in the pastor's prayer meeting this morning in my office, we were drawing from a lot that... <laughs> This is a disturbing scene. I mean, if you don't cut, whoa, then you're not getting it. You don't need a lot of imagination here. And some wrestle with the details of this story. Maybe you wrestle right now with the details of the story. Jael is deceptive. She's an ally. Her husband is an ally. She betrays Cicero's trust. She, she lures him into her tent. And then when he's sleeping and helpless, she brutally kills him. How, how, how should we think about this? How do we tell our kids about this? How do we tell the person who says, I thought your God was a God of love? I'm good with the New Testament. The Old Testament, no. Well, listen, our herm, this is where our hermeneutics, right? By that, I mean how we interpret Scripture matters. It matters. Listen, I'm just going to give you a little tidbit here. You go study on your own. But just because, remember this, just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> There's a lot that the Bible reports. There are a lot of happenings and events and facts that the Bible reports. Facts like David, King David. Yes, the man after God's own heart. He had multiple wives. And guess what? Jacob. Jacob. He deceived his father and stole his brother's birthright. To be clear, God does not endorse polygamy and deception. They are forbidden in the Bible. So just because we read a report or, or, we, or, we, or we read an activity in the Bible doesn't mean God is pleased with it. But this one, this one's a tough one because the text tells us that God is pleased with it. God is pleased. Verse 9, you remember we read that, reminds us Jael gets the glory, not Barak. Next week we will see that Jael is, in their, song, in their response, they sing the praises of God. They exalt the glory of God for what he has done on their behalf. And part of that song is that Jael is blessed for what she has done. How is that? How is that? Well, listen, Jael has killed a person who has done great evil to God's people. And that's another sermon. But right now, what we need to know is that in this context, Jael, Jael is, is a character who has done what Israel repeatedly failed to do, to destroy the enemy of God's people. In God's eyes, in God's purposes, she carried out his holy justice.
So what is the crucial message here? What, what is the crucial message? Well, you know that the message is always, the message in Judges is always the faithfulness of God. I said earlier, he, he is the hero, and Christ is the point. Everything happening here ultimately points to Christ. We've been talking about that a lot, and we should. Learning to trust in the faithfulness of God is crucial, isn't it, to following Jesus. But trusting in the faithfulness of God isn't a spectator sport. It's active. So there's another message for us here today. Next week, we're going to celebrate the faithfulness of God and the unmatchable power of God in battle to bring about his purposes. But this morning, I want to present this thought to you. When you make yourself available to God, he uses you. He uses you. He doesn't need you. He is sufficient in himself but he is pleased to use his people. In his infinite wisdom, he works through means, and you are a means unto his glory. You are a means to, in his providence, in his sovereignty, to bring about his purposes. And guess what? One of the things that we see here is that he even does that in our weakness and in our reluctance. We really see that in Barak. He was reluctant. He didn't, his faith was, he had to be coached. He needed Deborah there saying, come on, follow the Lord. He's promised you the victory, but that promise wasn't enough. But God is. God is mighty enough to accomplish his purposes through you, through us, a small church in the middle of the desert. God is mighty enough. He is powerful enough. But that doesn't mean we just sit back and presume on God. In this story, God used three people who trusted in his faithfulness by availing themselves to his purposes. Quick review, Brock. Brock was reluctant. He put conditions on God's command and promise. He needed human assurance. He needed Deborah's exhortations, get up and go. His faith was weak, yet he allowed himself to be used by God by going into battle in effect, a suicide mission for the sake of the Lord's purposes. Deborah, Deborah made herself available to the Lord from the get-go. She hears and delivers the word of God to Barak. She, she called him out when he hesitated. She even went into the battlefield with him. Deborah could have said, Barak, I, I got this tree, and people are waiting for me. <laughs> this is your call. The Lord was clear to me. Are you kidding me? Women don't go out in the battlefield. That's your job. I'll pass on the cultural controversy. Thank you. No, you need to go and obey God. Instead, Deborah made herself available to be used by God at the risk of her reputation 
and her very life. And God used her. Think about Jael, an ally with the enemy. She, she acted courageously and she had to act decisively. <laughs> she didn't pray for two weeks. No Bible study to do here. She had to act decisively for the Lord. And in doing so, she, she goes against her husband's allies to really finish the job. To finish the job and bring justice to God's enemies. Can you imagine what would have happened to Jael? She has no idea that, that Sisera's men aren't right behind him. And could you imagine what would have happened if even just one of his men would have walked inside of her tent, saw their general, his head nailed to the ground, and Jael standing over him with a bloody hammer. Over. <laughs> over. And yet she made herself available to God at the risk of her life. And God used her. Brock, Deborah, and even Jael believe their purpose was tied to God's purpose. Their they believe their, God's vision was their vision. They allowed themselves to be used in his mission. And so the question is, are you available to God today? Are you available to God when someone sits beside you at the coffee house or the airport? This is my weakness, by the way. If you're wondering, Pastor, where do you struggle? That's where I struggle because I can hunker down at the coffee shop. I got my books out. I got my laptop out. I'm reading something that's really profound about God, and somebody cozies up to me right next to me. I'm thinking, oh, do not talk to me, please. Can't you see? They wrote a song about this. Can't you see? I'm reading a book. Right? I got important business. Deborah was, sit, was sitting under the tree giving people God's word. Well, I'm sitting at this table getting ready to give people God's word in a couple. Can't you see I'm reading the book? And I just remove myself from the potential of God's purposes to be a light and to be a witness. Are you, what's yours? Are you available to God when your unbelieving coworker or neighbor is experiencing tragedy in their life and they knock on your door? I had this a few weeks ago. I'm, re, I'm putting up some tile and I got this quick drying grout that I'm panicked about. Don answers, the, hey, it's Pastor Derek here. My wife is really struggling Well, I'm grouting and it's drying quick. I yell through the house. What, and I go walking over there. Hey, I, I know, yeah, what are you doing? He tells me what's going on. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Can I call? Wasn't that available? I was available to my grout job. Not available to a struggling neighbor who said, Derek is a pastor. I'm going to go talk to him. When a brother or sister is caught in sin or they need Christ-centered encouragement, are you available to God? Are you available to God when a friend distorts the gospel or twists sound doctrine in a conversation? Are you available? Say, wait a minute, what, what do you mean by that? 
If not, what hinders you? What, what holds you back? Fear of the unknown? Are you too busy with your purposes, too concerned with your reputation? It's all the above for me. But what hinders you? Listen, these questions, listen, they aren't, ma- they, they aren't meant to lead you into condemnation. These questions are intended to lead you to Christ where you find the power and the freedom to live as you were created to live. Because again, here's the good news. God doesn't raise up a new judge force. He sent his son, Jesus, to live and die and give you forgiveness for your sins and to impute to you righteousness. In other words, make it as if it's yours before the throne of God above. You you come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why? So that we could live for him. So that we could be lights in our community. So that we could be available to him in his purposes for us. See, in the kingdom of God, the sword has been exchanged for a cross where the battle was decisively won. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, death is swallowed up in the victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this. He says, don't be a spectator. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing because you know something and you know someone that your labor is knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If I can have the worship team come up. Listen, the moment you believed in the person and work of Jesus, his purposes became your purposes. His vision became your vision. His mission became your mission. That doesn't mean it's about you or me or us. It's about him, but he invites us. He invites us to come. The question for all of us is that are we available? And if you would say, Pastor, I'm I'm not sure I am. That's okay because we're all a mess. Too often our faith is weak. Too often our hearts are wandering. We are too forgetful of our purpose and mission in Christ. No one here has arrived. But all of us can make ourselves available to God right now by looking to Jesus, by looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, our great high priest who stood in our stead and stands in our stead before the throne of God above, ever interceding for us as he awaits, as we as he awaits us and we await his return, and he gives us mercy. He will never turn you away. However idolatrous you've been, he will never turn you away. His mercy will always allow you to enter into the throne room. And he will give you not just some grace. He will give you just the grace that you need to follow him and to give yourself to his purposes for his glory. Let's stand and sing.